Well, turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Exodus, and Exodus in particular, chapter 2. Last week, we saw together the birth of Moses and his arrival then in the home of Pharaoh himself. And sweet irony, the one who had given the king's edict to ensure that all sons are killed. Moses is saved through an ark and ends up in Pharaoh's daughter's hands and ends up growing up in Pharaoh's own house. It's incredible. Acts chapter 7 verse 22, reading into this story, says Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Moses grew up for 40 years in Pharaoh's own house. And this then is what happened next. We're going to read from verse 11 through to the end of verse 25. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered the flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he asked, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left this man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Let's pray. Lord, we have worshipped you in singing. And Lord, it's a joy to gather around your throne of grace and sing praises to you. You are the only one in the whole universe that's truly worthy of our praise and affection. And Lord, we now come to you to worship you in listening, to gather around your throne room of your word. Lord, would you teach us from your word today? Would you open our eyes to behold the mysteries that are contained within these words? Lord, help us to see why this is here, a reality that can change our life. So, Lord, be with us by your grace today. Amen. You know, at junior school, um, one of the yearly highlights for me was the annual school play. I loved it, and I always wanted to be in it. And ideally, I wanted a lead role. I wanted to be there performing to all the parents. Ideally, my own parents would come as well. The challenge was I never got lead roles because I wasn't very good. I was an umpa-lumpa one year. I was a dwarf another year. You know, it, it didn't really get on too well in my acting career in junior school. So once I got to high school, I moved into the backstage department. I knew my acting days were over. I went backstage instead. And I have to say, for me, I absolutely loved being backstage. So no matter how calm things have looked to, may have looked to the audience, when the lights are down and the, the curtains are shut backstage... There are a ton of things going on. 
Backstage, mayhem is going on. Backstage, there is a hive of activity and logistics and busyness, and everything is going on. The audience is sitting patiently. The band is playing, but back there, it is craziness. People are going everywhere, to and fro. People are hiding in the new staging. People are hunting into different closets to try and get changed, ready for the next act. For people are, are, are trying to rehearse their lines and make sure their mics are on and so forth. And for others of us as stagehands, we'd be helping make that a reality, putting on the staging out, making sure people have got changed in the right costumes, making people are right sure they're in the right places, making sure their mics are indeed on, that they do know their lines are just generally troubleshooting in any way that we can. While the audience is sitting patiently thinking, isn't this lovely? Backstage, there is so much going on. And I loved it. I loved being a part of that, and I loved seeing what was going on. And at the end of each of the plays then, and each of the musicals, you know, the backstage hands didn't exactly get all the accolades. You know what I'm saying? It was the main actors that always got the accolades. They would come out, the crowd would go crazy, and it was great. And as a stagehand, you never got much of an accolade at all. But that never bothered me. Because you knew you'd played a part in seeing this story go forward. You'd played a part in seeing this musical actually happen. You'd played a part in the detail. And as we come to Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 to 25, I tell you that story because I think what we have here really is a backstage moment in the book. It's not going to receive the accolades. We all know about Moses in a basket. Woo! We all know about the burning bush. Yeah! This bit, you think, what? It just sounds like a fill-in, doesn't it? If we're honest. And so you hear this stuff about the basket, you know, right in Moses' birth, and you think, that's amazing. And then you get to chapter 3, and we see God in the burning bush and declosing his name, I am who I am. You think, that's amazing. But this bit in the middle, it just appears that, well, well, Moses gets older for 40 years and then he's out one day and he's looking at a Hebrew and he sees a, a slave taskmaster beating him and he thinks, that's really bad. So he beats him back and kills him. Oh my gosh, this is awkward. Let's bury him. But then Pharaoh finds out and he's like, this is going to get really bad. He flees to Midian and he's there for 40 years. This is 80 years of his life. And he's hanging out in Midian. He gets married. He has a kid. And then, oh, burning bush. Back to the story. And yet I submit to you, in all reality, what we have here is so much more than just a fill-in. This is a backstage moment. A backstage moment. As the audience looks on at Israel, they assume for 430 years they've been in slavery, God's not doing anything. But with the curtain shut, backstage is alive and well, and God is at work. And right here, God gives us a backstage pass to see what he was doing all along. It's brilliant. What we have here are two lessons from a backstage pass. Two lessons that God wants to give us when the, whilst the lights are down, whilst no one's looking. And two lessons and what it really means to follow and trust and rest in the Lord himself, which is what this is about. We don't have to wait to the end of the book of Exodus to work out what does it really look like to follow the Lord through the life of Moses, he tells us in Exodus chapter 2 what it really looks like to follow the Lord. And so as God pulls us behind the scenes and shows us Moses, we see two lessons on what it really means to follow and trust and rest in the Lord himself. And so guess what? I have two points this morning because there are two lessons in this text. Two lessons, I think, if we pay attention and see that can truly be life-changing for us and greatly encouraging, and greatly comforting for us all. Here then is the first. As God takes our hand and pulls us behind the scenes in the story, what we learn is, number one, to truly follow the Lord takes courage. To truly follow the Lord takes courage. Look at verse 11 and 12. It says, One day... When Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now you're thinking, 
exactly where is the lesson on courage in that? Oh, it's there. Because you see, although this text seems pretty straightforward, in all reality, there's so much more that's going on here than meets the eye. And we know that by reading this text again in light of the book of Hebrews. Because in the book of Hebrews, the writer in the book of Hebrews tells us about this scene. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 to 26, this is what he says about this scene. Pay attention. He says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Listen. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Boom. The lights come on backstage all of a sudden. There is so much more going on here, far more than meets the eye. And when you read the book of Hebrews and reread this text, it starts to make a lot more sense. See, for 40 years of Moses' life, he's grown up in the home of Pharaoh himself. And that would have been incredible. Moses would have been eating the best food out there. It would be like Macca's Mark II going on in the home of Pharaoh. I mean, it would just be the best food that money could buy and agriculture could grow. He would have received the best education, the best preschool, the best high school, the best university. If you study history and you study ancient Egypt, you realize they were geniuses. And if you were in Pharaoh's home, you would be trained to the best of man's ability. And they would be receiving and enjoying the best that prosperity had to offer. These people were stinking, stinking rich. Even when they got buried, they got buried with gold and myrrh, all the different things that land has to offer. Egypt had it all going on. And for 40 years, Moses grew up in that. He was the poshest of the posh. That was Moses' story as he grew up. And yet it would seem that somewhere along the way, according to the book of Hebrews, Moses has encountered the Lord himself in his heart. Something has happened in Moses' life as he sits in the house of Pharaoh himself. The Lord has encountered him in his heart, and Moses has growingly understood, I'm not meant to be here. I'm a Hebrew. They are my people. They are meant to be who I'm with. And growingly, it would appear that Moses has already worked out, I need to help save them, and I'm going to give myself to that. Because I'm going to look to that final day when I receive a reward and not get it this day in the home of Pharaoh. So, at the age of 40 years old, with Moses' life seemingly turned upside down by an encounter with the Lord in his heart, he heads out of Pharaoh's palace to see his people. And it would seem and appear in his heart that he's already decided in his heart to follow the Lord and serve God's people, which he knew were his people. And so that's what he does. That's why in those two verses that you look on and think, well, I don't quite get it. In verses 11 and 12, he says, his people twice. He's letting us know that God has done a work in his heart. And I understand they are my people. I'm meant to be with them. And when we read the phrase, he looked on at their burdens. You know, the word, the Hebrew word, it's actually a verb, yara. It actually doesn't just mean to look on at their burdens. It means to see their burdens with emotion. He's going out this day to see his people. And when he sees the conditions they're living in and the slavery they're in, his heart breaks for them. He's gutted by what's taking place. He's overwhelmed by what is taking place. Philip Ryken, in his wonderful commentary, says, going out to the Hebrews... It was a life-changing trip for Moses because when he left Pharaoh's palace to visit his own people, he took his heart with him. How wonderful. That's what he did. Moses had grown up the grandson of a king. He had it all. But as he went out this day to his people, indeed God's own people, his heart breaks for them as he sees the bondage and the slavery they are in. He looks on at them with emotion, realizing these people are my people. And his heart is utterly overwhelmed. And so when he sees then an Egyptian taskmaster brutally beating one of his own people, 
He is indeed and understandably enraged. He's overwhelmed by what is taking place. Overwhelmed, how dare they? The word there, naka, in the Hebrew means beating to death. He was watching a taskmaster beat one of his own people to death. He knew he was trying to kill him. And Moses was utterly overwhelmed and enraged. And so, looking this way and that, he decides to do something about it. See, perhaps he was looking this way and that to see if somebody else would come and rescue this slave. Perhaps he was even hoping that someone else would step in. Or perhaps, more likely, he knew even while running to this Egyptian exactly what he was going to do, i.e. kill him. How dare he be seeking to beat and murder one of my own people? And so he runs up to this Egyptian, he grabs him, he bludgeons him to death. And I put to you, immediately Moses knew in that moment that what he had done was indeed wrong. I think he immediately knew that what he had done was too far. Which is why he quickly looks this way and that and then buries him in the sand. He doesn't want to drag him back. He doesn't want to be seen with this guy, so quickly gathers the sand and pulls him in the sand. He buries him in a shallow grave. Moses knew he had gone too far. And my friends, I submit to you, he has gone too far. He's gone way too far. Murder is wrong. It is totally wrong. And Moses, in truth, I think he knew that. Because the law that he would later bring down from the Mount Sinai experience with the Lord of thou shall not murder had in fact already been written on his heart and conscience. He knew this is wrong. But he was enraged and overwhelmed. He had gone too far. Murder was wrong and this murder was totally unnecessary. Moses was a prince of Egypt. He could have done something about this. He had an instinct, I think, already that God was going to use him to save his people, even though he didn't really understand all that that had meant. His heart wasn't all that bad, and his instinct was, in fact, a good one, but he knew that this was just too far. He'd gone too far. My friends, I submit to you, though, as God pulls us backstage in this lesson, there's a great lesson for us to discover and follow. As God takes our hand and pulls us backstage, he wants us to see that to truly follow the Lord takes courage. Because listen, Moses has gone too far. Murder is wrong. And God had not given Moses the authority to be judge and jury and executioner over all. But pay attention. The motive and the heart was a good one. And what you see here is courage. Moses has experienced an an encounter with the Lord in his heart while living in Pharaoh's home. He comes out, he sees God's people, and his heart breaks for them. And yes, he goes too far, but his motive is, I've got to do something. This is injustice. This is wrong. I've got to step in. Yep, he went too far. But what you see is courage. And when you see that, you realize, has not all the way through chapter 1 and 2 had a theme of courage within it? You see it first then with the midwives, Shifra and Pua, Hebrew midwives. The Pharaoh of Egypt demands that you will kill the boys. They knew then that they were taking their life in their own hands by refusing to do that. They knew that the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, would kill them in a moment. No dramas at all. They were just two midwives. No big deal to the king. And yet we read they feared the Lord more than they feared the king. And so they wouldn't do it. And God protected them and loved on them and blessed them. It's clear that as they stood there, it wasn't just a fear of the Lord. What did it actually look like in their lives? It looked like courage, did it not? courage to stand on the truth of God. I love the Lord more than you. I'm more fearful of the Lord than I am you. So here I stand. So help me God. We just see the same with Moses' mom. Imagine the news, as I said last week, of hearing that you're pregnant and then delivering a boy, knowing that all the Egyptians, even your neighbors, have been commanded by the king to break in and grab that boy and throw him in the Nile. 
For three months, it took courage for that mum to nurse him and rock him and to keep him quiet. And for three months, it took courage from her to love him and help him, knowing that she was taking not only her own life in her hands, but the life of, her older, of Moses' older brother and sister as well. And then after three months, she put Moses in the ark and she closed the lid and she put him on the Nile in courage. Effectively saying, Lord, I'm entrusting him to you now. And now we see that, see that same courage with Moses himself. Albeit that he goes too far, albeit that murder is wrong, the heart is a good one because it is a heart of following the Lord and following his people and helping his people. And so he stands in when he sees injustice with courage and commanding that this is wrong. You know, one of the things I love about the Bible is we read the Bible, but the Bible reads us. The Bible still speaks today. And when you see this theme of courage, the question that I think it beckons is simply this. What is it in your life that God's calling you to that's going to take courage? What is it in your life, and indeed my life? I'm not immune to this, I'm just like you. What is it in our lives where God is calling us to do something that's going to take courage? We see it in the midwives, we see it in Jochebed, we see it in Moses. But in some ways, as the Bible lifts up on us, I think the question is, what are you going to do now as you follow the Lord? See, in all reality, my friends, to follow the Lord in this life is inevitably going to cost you something. And I think for us Sydney siders, we need to hear that more and more. We don't believe in a health and wealth gospel theologically, but sometimes we practice in our hearts as if we do. That we should always be healthy and we should always be wealthy. And if we're not, then God isn't blessing us. Do we believe that? No. But in our hearts, sometimes we scream that. We're called by God to take up our cross and follow him. That was never going to be a walk in the park. It's going to be a challenge. It's going to be difficult. It's going to take courage. To truly follow the Lord in this life is inevitably going to cost us something. So what is it in your life that God's calling you to that's going to take courage? Maybe it's a situation in your family. You only become convicted by the Lord that Ephesians 5 is true. Well, well done, because it is. And so what that means is husbands are the head of the home. They're called to lead by the grace of God. And they're called to lay their lives down for their wives like Christ does of the church. And the wives in that picture are the church. They're called by God to follow the Lord, to trust themselves on the Lord and follow their husbands as they follow Christ. And maybe you become aware that for you that's true. That is exactly what you need to do. And yet you're aware if you really start practicing this, it's going to be difficult. There's going to be a level of ridicule in your home from one spouse to the other. And to your friends, this is going to seem utterly ridiculous. You know what? To follow them, the Ephesians 5, you know what it takes in this culture growingly? Courage. It takes courage. It takes courage for men. I submit to you, it takes 10 times the courage for wives to really work against culture and, to, and follow God's word and stand on God's word and therefore follow their husband. Maybe for you, it's a situation in your workplace. You're doing your job, but your job growingly is becoming clear that it's asking you to morally compromise in some way. And the challenge, is, the challenge for you is it's not an obvious moral compromise. Well, it is for you, but it's not in your workplace. In your workplace, they just say, well, this is part of your job. This is how you get the job done. And yet growingly for you, you're aware, if I'm going to follow that, I'd have to compromise on my convictions. And yet you're aware, if you don't, do it, then you'll probably lose your job. You know what it takes then not to do it? Courage. Courage to stand on God's word and say, you know what, for better or worse, here I stand. This is who I am. This is what I believe for the glory of the Lord. Maybe for others of you, it's a situation with your location. You've recently been chatting to your boss about life and about stuff. And it's clear your boss has got good news for you. He wants to offer you a job. 10,000 miles away. 
And it looks like a great job. It's going to be a great, great blessing for you, or at least it would seem that way. You're going to have money, you're going to have experience, you're going to be able to care for your family in a different way. It looks like a really neat opportunity. The only challenge is, hand on heart, you really believe before the Lord that he's calling you to be at this local church, to play a part in this local church, to give yourself to these brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers, and to give yourself away in this local church, maybe even for the rest of your days. And so you go back into your workplace and you're about to tell your boss that, hey, listen, I'm not going to take it. It might seem weird to you, but I'm not going to take it because I want to be a part of this local church. And yet your boss already preempts different things and lets you know, listen, if you don't take it, that's okay. But, well, I don't know if there's going to be a job here for you anymore. You know what, my friends, for some of us, to go and to leave this church and go somewhere else is going to take courage. Took courage for Moses. He had to leave Egypt to go to Midian. And yet for others of you, I submit to us, and I think the mass majority of us, it's going to take courage to stay. Because it may be me, but house prices are going a little bit up in this area. I think it takes great courage then to stay and say, you know what, Lord, I'm going to have to entrust myself unto your provision for me now and for my future. But as for me and my home, I believe we're meant to be called here. So I've given myself here for your glory and I trust, Lord, my ultimate good. Sometimes it takes courage to go. Sometimes it takes courage to stay. And maybe for you it's none of those things, but it's actually courage in your conversations with your unbelieving family or your unbelieving school friends or your unbelieving workplace. They kind of know loosely you go to church but they don't know that you believe that outside of putting their faith in Jesus Christ, they're going to be destined to eternity in hell. They don't know that. And you know you're called by God to tell them, to love them, to treasure the gospel and communicate it to them, just as Riley read out just a few months ago. How are they going to call on the name of the Lord in whom they've never heard? And you know, I'm called to go there. You know what to actually go and get over the pain line takes? Courage. It takes courage. My friends, to truly follow the Lord takes courage. Don't want you to think for a moment that following Jesus is going to be a jolly skipping walk in the park. Nope. He says, yeah, come and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. And let's do this for the glory of God. What is God calling you to in your life that's going to take courage? Listen, the encouraging thing of Scripture is He will never leave you nor forsake you. He tells us, Lo, I'll be with you to the end of the age. I will never leave you. In fact, through the Spirit, I'll make my home in you. I will give you the words to say, I will never leave you. But make no mistake, as Christians, to truly follow the Lord will still take courage. That's not all. As Moses, through the Lord, brings us behind the scenes of this story, we also have a second lesson. And it's this. To truly follow the Lord takes trust. It takes trust. It takes trust in Him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. See, as Moses leaves the Egyptian taskmaster's body in the ground that day, he knows he's done wrong. That's why I believe he's so busy trying to bury the guy. But he's convinced that surely the Hebrews will nonetheless understand what was going on. Surely they'll understand it so they won't spread the word. I should be okay. That's what we read in Acts chapter 7 verse 25. When Stephen is declaring to the people of God what exactly happened on this day. In Acts 7.25 we read, He supposed, meaning Moses, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. Moses had honestly thought that, listen, I shouldn't have done that. Oh my gosh, that was too far. But I'm sure they'll understand. They will see that I was trying to save one of my own. But they did not understand. (laughs) They did not. So back to the book of Exodus, verses 13 to 14. It says, When he went out the next day, Behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, 
Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? He's in effect in that moment mocking Moses. Who do you think you are? Who made you a prince and a judge over us? I mean, thanks very much for yesterday, but we don't even got a clue what you're doing. And Moses, we discover, was instantly afraid. And he was afraid because he knew if you two boys know, then everybody knows, and it isn't going to take long to get to my grandfather, Pharaoh. And it didn't. Pharaoh had indeed heard of it, and he sought to kill Moses. Why? Because this was treason against his crown. All of Egypt was standing against the slaves, and now Moses, his grandson, was standing up for the slaves. This was treason against the crown of Egypt. And so he sought to find Moses and indeed kill him. And as a result, Moses, in great fear for his life, flees from Egypt and arrives in Midian. You know, Midian was about two days' run from Egypt. It would appear Moses ran fast and long. He kept going. He wanted his life to be spared. He fleed from Egypt in in this moment at absolute full speed to a people who in actual fact are distant relatives to the Israelites through Abraham's second wife, Keturah. And once present, Moses sits down at a well, no doubt exhausted from the journey and incredibly thirsty. And then the following happens. Verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave, his, gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So Moses pops himself down by the well. He's been running from Egypt, and he is once again confronted with gross injustice. Not this time slaves being oppressed by their masters, but women being abused by men. It would appear that this has been a long-standing effect between the daughters of Midian and these shepherds that keep coming through. The daughters of Midian are looking after their father's sheep. They go to the troughs. They fill the troughs with water. And just as they get them filled, shepherds come through. Whoa! Get out! Get out! And remove all the sheep and kick these women away. And Moses stands up from the well and thinks, not on my watch, you're not. And it would appear he's grown, doesn't he? At last, he doesn't kill people. He doesn't kill the shepherds. But he does stand up to them and make it clear, you have no right to do this, and indeed they flee. And Moses calls the women back and calls them herds back, and she even helps feed these sheep and water these sheep and help them. Something that would be hugely inconvenient and difficult for a posh boy from Egypt to do. But he's already learnt what it is to serve. And so he starts to help these women, and these women then get home to their dad, And they tell their father about all that has happened, and he does what any self-respecting father with seven unmarried daughters does when they find out about a fine man sitting alone by a well. (laughs) You need to get back there and get this dude over for lunch, because we need to get to know him more. And so that's what he does. The girls go back, they find Moses, hey, do you want to come for lunch? Sure, I'm not doing anything. So they go back to the house, and one thing leads to another. And in time, he decides, hey, I think I'm going to stay with you guys. And Jethro gives him one of his daughters, Zipporah, to be his wife. And in turn, then in time, they have a son together and they call him Gershom. And for 40 years then, that's the way things are. He's married with a kid in Midian. I mean, talk about a riches to rags story. This is it. 40 years, he's been a prince of Egypt. 40 years, Moses had been living with Pharaoh himself, and yet Moses had now gone from living in the royal palace of urban Egypt 
to living as a foreigner in a rural Midianite tent. And from the privilege of the prince of the greatest nation on earth to the obscurity of a fugitive criminal living in the Sinai desert. And for 40 years, that's all that's been going on. And you can't help but think, for most of that time, Moses must have known, I blew it. My people are still in Egypt. And I'm here in a foreign land, as a Jordan. I can't even go back. I can't do anything to help them. And the Lord was stirring something in my heart and I went out to see them 40 years ago and I realized everything that was happening to them was wrong. But they rejected me. They weren't interested in me. And Pharaoh will kill me if I go anywhere near. 40 years. See, sometimes we want God to answer a question within 10 minutes. 40 years. It can look like on the face of it, that Moses' life is completely derailed, can it not? And in actual fact, it's when you look again that you realize that even now, in a present and intimate way, God is completely and utterly involved. He never left him at all. And for these 40 years, he hasn't just been wondering, no. God's been with him each and every step of the way, preparing him and loving him even though I don't think he had a clue. But God's at work. You see it in the details, and you can miss it. So let me show you it, because you can see God's involvement. You can see God's involvement in Moses' living situation. See, he's now living with the Midianites. And Midian wasn't really a place so much as an area, because these guys were desert nomads. They lived in tents. And they just went from place to place as they moved their sheep and their herds around the desert. Each and every day, then, this posh boy from Egypt would discover the harsh realities of what it meant to live in the desert and find your, have to find your bearings and food and water and shelter each and every day. Do you think God might have been preparing him a little bit there for what was to come when he would lead a people around the desert for 40 years? And then look at his family situation. When Moses had left Egypt, he could have ended up anywhere, couldn't he? He could have run in any direction. But he runs to Midian. He could have sat at any well, but he sits at that well. And then he could have met any group of women, but he meets these women and he marries Zipporah. And we discover in verse 16 that Zipporah was the daughter of Jethro. And it says Jethro was a priest. And as I said before, Jethro was distantly related to the Israelites. What that means is very, very likely Moses was being taught by a father-in-law who knew the one true God, who loved the Lord, who knew the father of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He was a priest. He worshipped the one true God. His name, Reuel. I think we've learned by now, I should have learned by now, there's a lot of, lot of stacks stored in names, rules. Not just, I mean, we just pick names, don't we, because we like them. Not in these days they didn't. They picked names because they meant something. You know what rule means? Friend of God. That's what rule means. Moses could have ran anywhere, to any well, to any women. He ends up getting married to Zipporah, whose dad is a priest who is a friend of God. And for years, it is most likely then that Moses would have been trained by his father-in-law all about the Lord. Remember, Moses left his home and his mom when he was three or four years old. He grew up in Pharaoh's home. But now he's out in the wilderness, walking around the wilderness, and you can't help but think, but each and every step of the way, Jethro, whose first name was Jethro, surname was Rule, would have been speaking to him about, let me tell you something else about God. Moses wouldn't have had a clue. But he's being trained even now by the Lord. And then look at his work situation. We discover in chapter 3, verse 1, that Moses had become a shepherd. And that, for a guy who's grown up in Egypt, is nothing short of a miracle. It's unbelievable. I mean, in Genesis chapter 46, verse 34, 
It says, all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. <laughs> Egyptians hate shepherds. They don't like sheep. And yet God, in divine mystery, has called Moses to get married to the daughter of a guy who's a priest who also looks after sheep. And he makes Moses, for the next 40 years, a shepherd. A man who himself will be guiding and nourishing and protecting and feeding and helping sheep for a living. He'd be looking after sheep. Stupid sheep. Each and every day. Helping them, feeding them, protecting them, looking after them. Can you not see that God might have been preparing him for a little something? For 40 years, Moses would have most likely thought, I blew it. For 40 years, God had been intimately involved in his life. Isn't it great? The Lord takes our hand and he pulls us backstage in the story. And when you do, you can't help but see that even now in Moses' life, God is intimately and sovereignly involved in his life. It's not hard to see when you pay attention to the words, but in all honesty, in the real time of our lives, it can be so much harder to see him in ours. It can be hard, can't it? So we look back at this and we see Moses. Oh, this is amazing. This is genius. I can't wait to growth group to share all about what God's shown me and how God is with Moses each and every day. But then as we share, we realize that I tend to believe he's not with me, though. And so when we're suffering, when we're going through difficulty, when things are happening with our kids or in our friendships or in our workplaces, we can so easily think that surely, surely you're not with me. But in all honesty, my friends, therein lies part of the reason why I think this most glorious backstage story is here. Namely, to give you a lesson to help you and I see that in just the same way God is intimately involved with Moses, so he is with you. And so he is with me. Through Christ, we're an heir with Moses. We're a brother or sister of Moses. And God assures us all the way through, in just the same way I'm with Moses, I'm with you. I'm caring for you. I'm bothered about you as my child. No wonder then the psalmist says this in Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, even there your hand shall lead me. And your right hand shall hold me he knew. The psalmist knew, Lord, you will never leave me nor forsake me. You will never let me go. I know it and I believe it. And so, Lord, I don't always feel it. I don't always experience it. But, Lord, I trust you because I know there's nowhere I can go from your presence and there is nowhere I can go from your guiding hand because you always hold me fast. That's why Paul could say this in Romans eight twenty eight, And we can know Get this into your head, Sovereign Grace. We can know. He's talking about us. We can know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. Isn't that wonderful? That's why he says to the Philippians, and I am sure of this, I'm sure of it, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? He knew it. All these people of the Bible, they knew it because they knew God oversees each and every intricacy of our lives. And it won't always feel like that. You think Moses walking around the desert for 40 years was just thinking, this is great. I just know the presence of God each and every day of my life. I think most likely he didn't have a clue. But God was always with him, always guiding him, always holding his hand. Always hemming it in, both behind and before. Watching over his coming and going. Setting it up so that he could ensure that this would work for Moses' good and his glory. All the way through. God is intimately involved. Kevin DeYoung says it this way. I love this. He says, God doesn't waste our time 
for he's always up to more than we know. And though he doesn't work on our timetable, if you belong to him, you can be sure that he is always working for you. How beautiful. You may have realized like by now, particularly if you're as old as me, that God's timetable is significantly different from your timetable. But don't for a moment think that that means he's not working for you. It just means his timetable is different. But he is ever-present, ever-sovereign, ever-good, ever-intimately involved. You know, I've gone through some things in my life at different times where I've wondered where God is. And particularly when Josh was small. And as I've shared the story before, when he was born, he was very sick. And he had one kidney that was working properly. Still, and he has one kidney that's working properly. Apparently, I only need one, so it's fine. Yeah, but it was quickly become apparent as he was developing that, hey, this isn't quite right. He just wasn't able to speak. And as many of you know, he, he, he was discovered to have a submucous cleft palate. And when he was three and then seven, he had that operated on. And then he had heart surgery when he was nine and then we uh, eight. And then we moved to Australia. But here, here's the backstory to that. Between Josh being zero and three, we didn't know he had a cleft palate. So we were undergoing every test known to man to work out what the problem was. There was chromosomal tests, there was all sorts of tests, and every time me being the idiot was Googling, what would this mean if he has this? And you're like, whoa. How are we going to cope with that? What, what are we going to do? I think there's only one thing harder in our lives to face that is more difficult than an answer of yes or no from the Lord, and it's an answer of trust me. It can be hard. It can be difficult. Even when I was moving to Australia, you know, I really sensed the Lord was calling us to come here. We sought counsel, and over time it became clear to, to all of us that this is what we should be doing. And so we replaced my role in my last church. We put our house on the market ready to rent it out. We started to sell things, get rid of things. And then about three months before we were planning to come, the Australian government decided that I wouldn't have enough to do when I come here, and so it wouldn't give me a visa. Whoa. So what am I going to do? I can't get here. I felt like the people of God with my back up against the river, you know. What am I going to do? Sometimes trusting the Lord and waiting is very, very, very hard. But I can assure you of this. God is always involved. It's easy to look back with hindsight and see him, but it takes faith to believe in him in the present. But that's what this lesson is here for. To help us see that to truly follow the Lord takes trust. And my friends, as this, less, as this lesson comes to an end, just look at how much we can trust this promise-keeping God who holds you. Look at verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. For 430 years, the Hebrews have been in bondage to the Egyptians. Don't let that skip over you as if, oh, I know that. 430 years. It'd be like us going into slavery and like, 1578, or whatever it works out to be. That's what, it, that's what it means. 430 years, the people of God are in slavery, and they're crying out to God, help me, help me. Not knowing how this is all going to pan out. But God in his grace never left them. And God in his mercy made a promise to Abraham, all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, that through you, Abraham, I will make a mighty nation. And it will be a nation where I will be their God and they will be my people and I will make, a and I will make them in such a way that they'll be a blessing to the nations. My friends, we serve a God who never, ever renegades on his promises. He never does. And so when the time was right, he heard them and he saw them and he remembered them and he knew. My friends, he had heard and seen them before. And each and every time he had gone to them to be with them, to give grace, to sustain them. 
But on this occasion, when the time was right, he heard them and he saw and he remembered his covenant to Abraham and he knew the time is right. The king, the pharaoh of old that would only kill Moses, has died and my deliverer in humanity, Moses, is ready. He knew. And so he's coming after them. He's coming after them. That's what we're going to see in the rest of the story. God knew, and so he actively comes after them. My friends, God never, ever breaks a promise. And so you and I serve and follow and are protected by a king who never breaks his promises. One who promises you then that I will never leave you or forsake you. I'll be with you to the end of the age. I'll hem you in both behind and before. I will use all things together for your good as you love me. I will carry on to completion everything that I've started in your life because past, present, and future, it's all a story by my grace and I will never leave you. They're promises. And the same promise keeper you see in these verses is the same promise keeper that oversees your life. Friends, whatever it is that's going on then in the backstage of your life, I want to encourage you. The promise keeper is always with you. He's always intimately involved. Nothing is a shock to him. He's guiding you all the time. And he will hold you fast. You know what we have here that is much more than just a filler in a part of Scripture, don't you think? It's a wonderful part of scripture where we have two lessons from a backstage pass. Two lessons that God wants to give us as the lights go down on the main storyline. And two lessons that he really wants to show us are what it means to follow and trust and rest in the Lord himself. Would we learn them? And would we treasure them? And would we live in the good of them? Let's pray. Lord, your word is genius. You are a genius. Lord, I thank you for giving us moments in your word like this, where we learn about how you care for your people, where we learn how to respond to you, namely encourage, but we also learn how you intimately care for all of our lives. Lord, I thank you then that on this pilgrimage of Christianity, we're never alone. You will be with us, and you will be with us all the way to the end of the age. Lord, I do pray then for our, my brothers and sisters. Would you help us to trust you? Would you help us to kneel our lives before you? Not only in the main storylines of our lives, but in the backstages of our lives. That we can so easily think that you're not involved. Lord, help us to see from today that you are actively and sovereignly and in mercy actively involved. And help us to trust you. For you will surely hold us fast. And would our souls then always find rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen.